Hello, and welcome to the Homeschool Sanity Show, your prescription for happier, healthier homeschooling. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Wilson, Christian psychologist turned homeschooling mother of six. Let's get started. Hey, homeschoolers. I interviewed Carol Barnier my first year doing the Homeschool Sanity Show, and it was a privilege for me. I had heard her speak at conferences and had read her books and loved what she had to say. Carol is not only hilarious, but is so wise in helping distracted students and moms. In today's episode, we'll discuss how to help kids who are not only distracted, but struggle to read. If you have or know a student with dyslexia or other reading challenges, you'll want to listen in. Before I get to the interview, I want to share some background on why I created Grammar Galaxy the way I did. I had five active boys and a girl I taught with them. One of my sons who struggled to read phonetically also was highly distractible. I taught language arts to friends' students who had ADD, dyslexia, sensory processing disorder, poor reading fluency, and reading reluctance. They were all boys. I wanted to create the curriculum I never had. First, I used stories because I know they are engaging and memorable. They explain the why of grammar and not just the how. Next, I made the characters in the stories have struggles like my kids and students have. So often, kids with learning challenges feel they are the only ones who don't get it. Then I made the seat work lessons very short. There is a lot of white space on the pages to motivate students. Kids can use highlighters to complete much of the work rather than pencils that require fine motor skills that often don't keep pace with other skills, especially in boys. I included an activity in every lesson that doesn't involve traditional worksheets. I hear from moms of active kids how much they love the large motor activities. Finally, I allow kids to feel that their work is important because it is. Fully literate kids can improve their lives and make the world a better place. You can try it for free with your child at grammargalaxybooks.com slash samples. Now about my guest. Carol Barnier spent over 20 years as a homeschooling mom, during which time she was also a busy and popular conference speaker. She created an online community for parents homeschooling highly distractible children called Sizzlebop, which enjoyed a membership of over 5,000 families. As a frequent radio guest and author of books and countless articles, she has shared a gazillion, the most real of numbers, tips on teaching and loving the highly distractible child. Today, she pours that same love of teaching out of the box into the child who struggles with reading. Through her new effort, Barton Buddy, she brings her multi-sensory support material, including new ditties and trademark sense of humor, 
to the parent using the popular Barton reading system at home with their own struggling reader who may or may not have just fallen out of their chair. Now here's Carol. Carol, thank you so much for joining me on the Homeschool Sanity Show again. I am thrilled to have you back as a guest. I loved the last time that we got to visit, but it has been a while. And in case my listeners aren't familiar with you, I can't believe that they aren't, but in case they aren't, would you introduce yourself to them? Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'd be happy to introduce myself. Um, I'm a first and foremost, a homeschooling mom of 25-ish years, just completed the last one. She's out of the nest and like, I'm not homeschooling right now. I don't even know what to do with myself. Um, and I guess the reason if you're any of your listeners know me, it's because of my work with the distractible, wiggly ADHD child. And that's kind of what launched my other career, other than homeschooling, of being a speaker at homeschool conferences and a regular guest at Focus on the Family and author of books and things like that. So they, they might know me from that, but if not, hey, I'm happy to meet them today. It works. <laughs> That's so great. Well, you've already mentioned that you are most known for that work on dealing with distractible um, kids. How did that come to be initially? I mean, and that is, that is really how I found you um, as an attendee at a homeschooling conference. Um, I had boys. I didn't know at the time that they were you know, necessarily that distractible, but I, I think your work is effective for all kinds of <laughs> young, busy kids. Yeah, I think I had the same view. You know, my first child was a boy and his distractibility, I didn't know what to compare it to. So I'm like, oh, he's just a boy. This is all boy. And then he goes off to kindergarten. And if, if a child can be said to flunk kindergarten, I think he flunked. <laughs> um, I mean, he got into some of the most amazing trouble, things that you would say, never say to any other child. I found myself saying to this child. So um, when, when I started looking around at potential first grades, I visited all of the possible um, public school options that we we had. And every single teacher said, he's going to need to be on medication if he's going to function in his classroom. And honest, I didn't fault them. I looked at him interacting with those kids and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, you might be right. He is different. I need to own this. So we began homeschooling out of desperation. Didn't know what else to do. Couldn't afford a private school at the time. And um, for the first six months, I tried to teach him like any other kid. And Boy, was that a mistake. So about <laughs> six months into that process, I finally threw everything out and I just started experimenting to see what would work with this child. And that's when our life changed. It was truly a fork in the road. I started figuring out how this wiggly child learns and what he needs to stay focused and what kind of programs work and what kind of activities don't work. And, and then I began sharing it. And that's how you and I ended up connected with each other because, you know, I mean, he was just a, a never ending source of, of material. Um, so I just kept churning out based on our experience, the things that worked. That is, that's great. And I think, you know, so many of us homeschooling moms have benefited from your work in that area, uh, personal experimenting, if you will. But you have told me, and you've already hinted at this, that you have a new mission, which is the dyslexic child. And I'm very curious as to how that came about. You know, I should have caught it sooner, to be honest. This is fascinating to me. Um, when you talk about dyslexia, and it's, it's uh, 
occurrence in the general population, the number you hear most often is somewhere between 10 and 20%. 20 is frequently used, one out of five kids. It's a really common thing. But when I started working with dyslexic kids at a private school recently, recently in the past few years, half of them had ADHD. The comorbidity of ADHD and dyslexia is massive, and I had no idea. So we used a a program with these kids and it worked very well. But for the kids who were distractible, I had to tap into my experiences of, we've got to find a way to make this more multisensory. We've got to put motion into this. We've got to come up with a ditty. You know me and ditties. I love ditties. (laughs) Um, And so we just came up with ways to work with the kid who had two issues going on at the same time. And the reason it became important to me was my son, I was talking to him about this new work I was doing. And he said, you know, mom, you missed it in me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You can read. It's well. He goes, well, I can. And the reason he can is because a lot of the things that I did to address his ADHD worked pretty well with his dyslexia, as it turns out too, but not as surgically intense as it could have been. I did this kind of multi-sensorial, sensory bouillabaisse in our whole homeschooling experience, you know? And so a lot of it helped him. But in the end, he would have been better help had I been more direct and purposeful. So now, now that I know that a whole bunch of my kids, my people, are also dyslexic, um, I have just really found a heart and a new, a new mission in that. Mm. Well, I think it's so important, and you are doing such a service to your kids, as you call them. I love that. Well, what are some of the signs of a struggling reader that might surprise people? Because I think most of us don't really know what dyslexia looks like. You know, we have this idea that it's like backwards letters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so can you, can you tell us what kinds of signs we should be looking for? Sure. And, and let me address the backwards letters because that's the number one belief. Oh, my kid doesn't reverse letters. He can't be dyslexic. So what's kind of interesting is some kids with dyslexia do reverse letters. So it is there for some. Dyslexia is this odd mix of things. When I had, we had probably 80 to 100 kids in our program um, at the school that I had I'd been the administrator at. And we had, I'd say, oh, maybe a third of them reversed their letters a third of them struggled with handwriting. A third of them were extremely gifted in math and sciences. I mean, they were such an interesting mix of things. But the ones that surprised me, if you look at a list um, uh, of warning signs of dyslexia, a bizarre one is if a child had chronic ear infections, their chances of dyslexia go up. I thought that was surprising. If they had stuttering, if they have a lot of confusion between left and right, a lot of these kids are ambidextrous simply because they never developed a dominant hand. But if they still have a problem telling their left from right, that can be an issue. So these kids also sometimes struggle to tie their shoes. And, and they have a hard time reading an analog clock rather than they'll always want a digital clock. I mean, those are things that just totally surprise me, but they show up frequently in kids who have dyslexia. Now, of course, the big things are, this is a kid who really struggles to spell. He's going to see it spelled five different ways. They all look fine to him. He may very well struggle with handwriting. He may have dysgraphia as one of the issues along with it. Dyscalculia, a kid who's, who, for him, the mathematic symbols get all jumbled up and confused. That can be in partnership with it. But you don't want to look at any of those things and go, oh, my kid doesn't have all of those, so this doesn't apply. Really, if he has like two of them, we ought to talk. We ought to think about it. You ought to look into it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very, very good. Well, what does Orton Gillingham mean? 
I have heard that in association with dyslexia and why is it important? Orton Gillingham comes from Doctors Orton and Dr. Gillingham back in the, oh, I think it was like 1935, it goes back that far, that they started realizing that there were some kids who were very bright, they were perfectly able intellectually, but their reading lagged behind. They started taking a look at it and in their research determined that this child needed a different type of instruction, that they needed not only more multisensory, but that the units by which you taught reading had to be much smaller. I I often tell teachers that I worked with, in the classroom, you're going to be teaching reading kind of macroscopically, but out in the learning center where we work, we're going to teach it microscopically. The units are simply much, much smaller. So Orton and Gillingham put this together, and it soon became kind of like the gold standard. They put together what's called structured literacy. There's another golden term. Because everywhere in all the states that are putting together legislation for dyslexia, most of them will include the, the catchphrase structured literacy. And so... You always want to, any program that you would use with your child, you really need to look for some kind of Orton-Gillingham influence, Orton-Gillingham basis. There, of course, then sprung up all sorts of organizations that called themselves Orton-Gillingham. And, you know, and so you need to understand there's an overreaching umbrella that's kind of the Orton-Gillingham method. And then there are specific companies that call themselves Orton-Gillingham tutoring or Orton-Gillingham, whatever. They're not interchangeable. They're, They're using each other's methods, but one is a, you know, there are other programs that also use the Orton-Gillingham methods that don't have Orton-Gillingham in their name, but okay. it is the gold standard. You need to, to make sure it's included. Mm, very good. Well, there is something when you are working with students called the wall. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's, it's this, kids can very often compensate and they can kind of make it along and you think they're doing okay and they'll eventually it'll just start clicking and they are compensating by using what we used to call whole language methods they're kind of like well they're guessing from the the pictures and the context of the sentence and what happened in the story previously and they'll kind of look at the first few letters and then guess and and their vocabulary is strong enough that they guess pretty reasonably well and and so it you can kind of think they're doing fine and then they hit this place usually around third grade or fourth grade where there is a shift. Prior to that, they're learning to read. But after third grade and fourth grade, they're reading to learn. Everything changes. And the reading load becomes much, much larger. They now have to read fluently and they have to read for comprehension. They have to le- learn from the actual context. And that has, that's a shift. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, this kid who seemed to be doing kind of okay slams into this wall, cannot keep up with their homework, doesn't understand what's going on in class, can't follow the directions, is bombing their tests because they're not able to to process the written word as well. That's what we talk about with the wall. And hopefully, it used to be, most schools did this, what was called the wait to fail method. They would wait until the child hit that wall and then they would bring in some sort of remediation. Now there are ways to know if a child is going to be struggling, even in kindergarten, Pre-reading, there are things that they can test for and look for, but certainly in first and second grade, you can catch those things. Well, that's, that is good to hear. So when you say shun, T-I-O-N, falls off a cliff, what does that mean? Well, I think it's a really good example of one of the ways that I'm going to use auditory cues for a kid rather than just having them, you know, read something. Um, 
When I'm teaching a child that T-I-O-N says shun, after we've gone through the lesson on that, what I want them to also notice is what syllables are accented. And that's really more important than you would expect because it impacts a lot of spelling rules, the accented syllables. So what I noticed is that when you have shun, the syllable right before it is always the one that's accented. And then it sounds like shun drops off of a cliff. So accented means it's a little bit louder, a little bit longer, a little bit higher. The pitch is actually higher on an accented syllable. So let me give you an example. Education. The K, education, my pitch goes up. I'm a little louder. I emphasize it a bit. But shun drops off a cliff. Education. So that works anytime you have a shun. Correction. Imagination. Revolution. It's always the syllable right before the shun that goes high. So that's how I just help them to remember which one to accent. Hmm. That's really excellent. Uh, I found that you know a lot of kids, especially dyslexic kids that I had in our homeschool co-op, would struggle with reading aloud and you know reading fluently mm-hmm. um, that way. So that's an excellent, excellent tip. Well, what if you have a struggling reader? Um, couldn't we just double down on reading each day and um, you know spend more time on that area where they struggle? And that, that seems to be kind of the general response. Just give them more and give them time. And honestly, for some things, that works. Some kids simply need more repetition to get a concept. So I understand that. But with dyslexia more of the same is never going to change it for them. And I know that that's, that's kind of surprising because with some other things, you, you may think, yeah, you know, eventually they're going to get there and, and they do. But this is different. This is organically different. And so more of the same isn't going to be helpful. I think one of the ways I like to um, give an example or an analogy is if I said to you, uh, here's a math term, seven schnoodled by a two, will grovenate into a 16. Now, if I said that to you 20 more times, are you ever, (laughs) ever going to have a clue what I'm talking about? And the answer is no. Until I can give you a clearer understanding of schnoodled and grovenate, we're not going anywhere. So with this child, that's exactly what it's like. You are saying schnoodled over and over and over again, and they are lost over and over and over again. They need that microscopic dissection, and they need grammar rules where a a typical visual child doesn't. You can say O-U-G-H, though. They're going to look at it every time. They're going to take a mental snapshot of that word, though, and they're going to see it that way. My kid is going to see O-U-G-H and go, oh, because phonetically that's not crazy, you know? And, And so they need very different approaches to learning those things. So I think the answer is no, you don't just want to double down. Very, very good advice. Carol, you once shared with me about an amazing kid who was the poster child for self-advocacy. Can you tell us about this child? I can. And and before I get to him, let me tell you why I think it's important. Because one of the things I I try to teach my kids, uh, not only is the the remediation aspect of dyslexia, but how to self-advocate. Because the accommodations that they are allowed by law are often not known 
in their schools, by their teachers, and even in their colleges. They don't know what it is they're allowed to ask for. So I start early trying to teach them the things that they're allowed to ask for, how to ask politely, how to navigate the system, how to get what you need, how to push gently but persistently. All of those things are part of what I'm trying to teach them because I want to equip them for success in several different ways. But let me tell you about this kid. This kid, God love this kid. He was about to go into high school and he figured out he was dyslexic. He got on the web and he's looking around and he's doing these self-diagnostic tests and he comes away and he turns to his parent and he goes, you know, I think I might be dyslexic. Could you check and see if I can get this testing done? So um, mom got a hold of me and we ended up um, testing this kid and I loved it. He came in and I did this test on him and he said, when are you going to score that? And I said, well, you know, if you give me about 24 hours, I might be able to get that done and get the report done. He came knocking on my door the next morning and goes, did you you score it yet? Because I'm pretty sure I'm dyslexic. In fact, I am free for the summer, so I can come to your summer program. He was really advocating hard. Well, boy, oh boy, was he dyslexic. I mean, he really was. And I will also tell you, and I, I am not exaggerating when I say this, I think he is possibly the smartest human I've ever met. Mm. I'm not, not just saying, oh, isn't that sweet? He's smart. No, I mean, this kid is really brilliant and really dyslexic. So we got him involved in the program and I've been tutoring him and we got to a certain point and I shared this one piece of knowledge with him and he got angry and I couldn't figure out what was coming. He was so angry and he said, why didn't they just teach it like that in the first place. He said, do you have any idea how much misery you would have saved me from if someone had just told me that when I was in first grade as opposed to now? And it really, it just, it broke my heart. It motivated me to to reach out to other kids. I'll tell you what else it motivated me. He's the one that got me started thinking about how are we going to get these Orton-Gillingham methods into the classroom? Because What I have read is that the research is indicating that 50% of the kids that I had to see out in our program, I would never have had to see if those methods Mm. were in the classroom. All kids can learn with these methods. My kids can't learn without them. Mm. So anyway, he was just, he has inspired me continuously with with what he challenged me to to do and be with this program because he was just so blessed by it. Mm. That is is a wonderful uh, testimony and I love how it inspired you. As a result of that, or maybe not as a result of that, maybe that was just one um, one experience that you had. Um, but you have started Barton Buddies, so you have a a program to help these kids. But why might a mom need a Barton Buddy if the program is already heavily scripted for her? Yeah, and I, I've got to say. Barton does a really good job of taking the language and and the needed specificity and putting it into the script. It, it is a really, really good program. So a mom can get by with that scripted thing, with that scripted language. But if you add into that a child who is so incredibly distractible, sometimes just going through that scripted lesson doesn't have enough multi-sensory layers to it for this child. Now, mind you, the Barton program in particular uses tiles, and they really do make an effort. But I know with some kids, you still need more. And the one thing I used to say about my son is, the one thing you can count on for him is you can never count on it. I mean, whatever worked yesterday (laughs) may not work today. Nothing was consistent. He was consistently inconsistent. And so I found that sometimes I would work on a lesson uh, with a child, and it would work 
perfectly fine for three of our sessions. And then on the fourth one, that same approach simply wasn't working. And I needed to have something, you know, in my back pocket to work on with this kid. So, you know, you know, like I, I love ditties. So I was always putting together ditties. I was trying to find ways to involve motion. So we might, um, obviously we're working at the whiteboard more often than we're sitting down. We're throwing a beach ball with letters on it and using that as a, as an example. Um, let me give you an example, I think, with, with using like BD confusion. That's one of my favorite ones. So if you're doing BD confusion in, in the Barton system, she's going to use a, a, a hand signal to teach the BD confusion and talk about pigs and balloons. And I like that a lot. But I also will put masking tape on the floor and have the child walk the letter B. Um, I have a little song that we sing about the bat and the ball. So they know the bat has to be drawn first and then the ball. If you draw the ball first and then the bat, you've got a D. That doesn't work. So we sing the bat and the ball song. I have wiki sticks that we use to make it and then we place it on something. Um, We have board games. We have hand signs. We talk about B has a belly and D has a diaper and they love how disgusting that is, you know, but it's that kind of stuff that's going to stick. So I'm going to have a lot of different layers. I'm going to have games. I used to have this little dart game where you'd throw these Nerf darts at the, the whiteboard and they would stick. And so they had to decide, did the word begin with a B or a D? And they had to throw it at the right letter. And it's just that kind of stuff. But I needed a bunch of those for those particularly wiggly kids. So that's why I decided that being a Barton buddy to homeschooling moms makes a lot of sense because it marries the two things very, very well. My long-term experience with a distractible child and my newfound love of the dyslexic child and how very often those things work together so well. Mm. Well, I think that is a wonderful opportunity for homeschooling moms who feel like they need that support. Um, And even if they don't feel like they need the support, I think they should check it out. Mm. I know you also talk a lot about technology for struggling readers. Can you tell us more about um, why that is? Yeah, you know, it started um, with a book that I read by by Ben Foss and... um, Oh, I should look up what book he had. It was the Dyslexia Empowerment Plan. And Ben Foss, he um, had dyslexia and he had Orton-Gillingham training. And, you know, he said he's really glad for it and it made a difference. But when he got to Stanford Law School, that's where he went to law school, suddenly the reading load was, as you can imagine, just gargantuan. It was, it was very, very high, probably one of the highest reading levels of, of most kinds of degrees. Nightly, 300 pages, easily. And he couldn't keep up. He could not keep up. So he figured out a way to listen audibly to his textbooks. He actually created a device that would do it. And then he started doing what I like to call speed listening. He found he could listen to it at two times the speed and three times the speed. And in the end, he could listen faster than his peers could read. And suddenly, not only was the playing field leveled, he had an advantage. And he actually now works to teach dyslexic kids speed listening. It takes a while to get there, but they can get there. So I suddenly realized that that needs to be another thing, along with, with teaching kids the basic remediation, in our case, using the Barton program, and teaching them self-advocacy. I also wanted to teach them the technological tools that are available, because there's a bunch of them, and I wanted them to have access to those. So clearly speech to text. I mean, that's a simple one. They, I need these kids to be able to speak it and, it and it shows up on the screen. And then part of the problem, part of my, my job was also to help them advocate in the classroom to get teachers to accept speech to text work, work that's been produced in that way. 
text-to-speech, in other words, where the, the printed page is read out loud to them. I mean, one of the, the great resources for us was a program called Learning Ally. They actually put a lot of textbooks on the Learning Ally program, and they have them read out loud by an actual voice. So, um, I mean, and Bob Jones and Abeka textbooks, they've got, you know, they've got some standard homeschooling materials in there, but um, it's also getting to the point where any article online, you can have read out loud to you. Um, Chrome has a, an app. Firefox has an app. And all you have to do is get, I just did it on Firefox the other day. You get their little app called Read Aloud. You add it on. And now anything you pull up on the web can be read out loud to you. There's a little bit of snobbery about digitized <laughs> electronic voices versus real voices. And, you know, I think it's lovely if you can get a regular warm and fuzzy human voice on the other end. Sure. That's certainly my preference. But if you can't, okay. You know, if the option is to not have the access to the reading at all, well, then I'd rather have a digitized robotic sounding data like voice than nothing at all. So I still think it's a powerful tool to be able to have it there, even if it's not a warm and fuzzy voice. Um, one of the things I trained my kids on is using the Merriam-Webster dictionary app, because all you have to do is speak the word and it pops up. My kids are never going to be able to use a regular dictionary very well. And then a lot of the devices that came out that were helping them spell, they had to know how to spell all of it, save maybe one letter. Well, they're still lost then. Merriam-Webster, bless their hearts, you just speak it and the word pops up. In fact, I actually wrote them and I was talking to their, um, their technology, I don't know, uh, IT guy. And I said, if you really want to endear yourselves to dyslexic people everywhere, have another option where I can hit a button and it will spell the word back to me out loud. And I'll tell you why that matters. So a kid is sitting there and he's doing his writing. And he's got his pencil over it. And he thinks of a word, I don't know, xenophobic. He really wants to put down xenophobic, but he has no clue how to spell it. So he hits the button. He says xenophobic. It shows up. Now he has to do that thing where he looks up and he looks down and he writes a letter. And he looks up and he looks down and he writes a letter. And he loses his place because he doesn't have a visual memory. It would be so much easier if you hit the button and Merriam-Webster began X, E, and, oh, and it went ahead and spelled it for you. That would be wonderful. Mm. Um, another thing I like, it's called SnapType. And it was created by a mom, I think. And you can load it onto your phone. You can take a picture of any worksheet. And now your child can type in the answers rather than write in the answers. And then they just print it out and turn it in. And I'm trying to get, uh, again, teachers who will allow children to use that, particularly if they, if they have dysgraphia, take out the writing and let them show you what they know. Um, I think that's probably a bigger lesson here. I'm going to tap into that here a second, is that I think very often we need to get the pencil out of this child's hands and use the multitude of other ways for them to show us what they know. Now, certainly you got to work on handwriting, you got to work on that, I get that, but save that for writing. Save that for the actual lesson of writing, because otherwise, here's what happens. There's this kind of belief out there, well, if they're struggling with writing, then I'm going to have them do a little bit of writing on absolutely every single subject. And I get that. There's some wisdom in that. They'll get probably a little better at writing, but here's, here's the cost. You have now decided that this child is going to proceed and move through every academic subject at the speed of their weakest skill. 
And now they believe that they're lousy at math and they're lousy at history and they're lousy at social studies and they're lousy at everything because it's all tied to writing, which he's truly lousy at. So I think we need to allow these kids to be good at the things they're good at because they're already thinking they're not very bright because of the writing and reading stuff. So let them know how bright they are in the areas where they can shine and say writing and reading for its particular place. There, I'm done with my sermon. Okay. Well, I'm applauding. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) I am in full agreement with you. I I thought that was just, um, just so spot on. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm going to put links to the resources that you mentioned in that, um, so that my listeners can find those, um, and access them. So I'm very excited about all the things that you shared there. I want to know if someone has to have a true diagnosis of dyslexia in order to use this program. Well, just the words true diagnosis can just start a bar fight. If you get a bunch (laughs) of educational psychologists together, I mean, it's such a mix of struggles. <laughs> it's such a mix of struggles. And um, one simple test is really not going to do it. You can absolutely get some clues from a simple test, but to get a, a fuller picture, you need an evaluation, which is a very different kind of thing. But what you're going to take a look at is here's some fancy terms phonemic awareness and their fluency, and their automaticity, and their ability to do rapid naming. Um, that's going to give you a better sense of how, how strong their fluency skills are. And believe it or not, a huge portion of dyslexia has to do with auditory processing. And everybody used to think, oh, it's a vision thing. They need special glasses. They need special fonts. They need special colored paper. No, it's an actually an auditory processing struggle where getting the sound correctly And then in their brain, connecting it to the symbol correctly, lots of things go wrong in that process. So so back to the question, do we need an actual diagnosis? Um, You can get things. Certainly an educational psychologist will be happy to give you kind of a broad evaluation, and they will say that this child's scores are consistent with someone who struggles with dyslexia. You'll get something like that, some wording like that. Um, But what I like about Orton-Gillingham methods is that they do no harm. That's the most important thing. And all kids can learn with them. So if you've got a child who's struggling, you don't really even fully have to necessarily know why to find value in the multi-sensory Orton-Gillingham approaches. You will probably likely find value and find improvement even without a diagnosis. Now, I have to say that there, particularly if you've got anyone whose kids are in, in public school, they're going to hear the names of some tests. Um, the ones that we used at the school where I used to work were Ames, Webb, and Dibbles. And Dibbles, it's D-I-B-E-L-S, just one B. Dibbles is an amazingly simple test. It's like one minute long, this reading test. And yet when you take the score from a one-minute reading, and you compare it against millions of other children who took the same test that year in schools across the country, it really is a pretty good uh, bellwether of how they're doing because it's cross-referenced across so much data. And then when we had a child who would pop 
on a Dibbles test. We did a secondary test that was a little bit longer, like 45 minutes, something like that. I was astounded over and over again how often Dibbles got it right. Occasionally, a kid was just having an off day and Dibbles got it wrong. But over and over, I'd say 90% of the time, Mm. it was confirmed by the more involved tests that we did. Now, I'm saying all of that to say every now and then, I would have a kid go through all of this They did fine on these tests, and yet they were clearly struggling in class. They were clearly struggling with reading. And what we ended up doing was saying to parents, this is still an option. We don't don't know why they did well on this test and they're struggling in the classroom. But the things that we're going to be doing, first of all, will do no harm. And second of all, are incredibly likely to help even without the diagnosis. So how's that for a nice squishy answer that has no definitiveness? It's I, just the truth. I, I love it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, and to me, that it seems similar to getting a diagnosis of ADHD or ADD. Um, you know, I've been involved in diagnosing that and it's, uh, it can be challenging and squishy as you put it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I am interested in knowing if you are personally tutoring students at this time? I, you know, I am. I was, I was working at the school um, where, the private school that I was working at, and I was the administrator of an eight-person tutoring team there until June of this year. So even back in March when COVID hit, we took the entire program online. And at first I was very resistant about that. I thought, this isn't going to work. I need to have these kids in person. But so many other Barton tutors told me, they said, actually, it's easier online. These kids are used to screen. They're used to that interface. You've got them one-on-one. There's not all these ambient noises going on. And lo and behold, it was true. I mean, we did really well online and I fell in love with it. So um, I have continued, yes, with online tutoring. And I think because I really want to continue to churn out Barton Buddy tools that are tested, I have to have a group of kids all the time. You know how sometimes you you buy a book and you read this great game in it, you try it and you think, this woman has never tried this game. This never, (laughs) ever, I mean, there's 14 things wrong. This is not going to work. She didn't explain it clearly. I don't want to be that woman. So I'm always going to maintain a small group of students um, so that I, you know, my material is really tried in the trenches and and will have real value. Mm. That's excellent. Well, I'm going to put in the show notes the best way for people to reach you if they're interested in working with you on this. But for now, I would love for you to share any final thoughts that you have for the mom who is listening, who has a child who is both distractible and struggles to read. You know, I think, I think the most important thing is to understand All kids learn all things in different ways, first of all. That's the most important thing. So when I first began homeschooling, I I developed this philosophy that really worked well for us, and that is I consider myself the keeper of the keys. And so I believe any any piece of learning, any piece of knowledge can be unlocked in a variety of ways. You just have to find the right key that unlocks it for your child. So here's how that worked with my child. I would say to them, look, when I bring you a piece of information and I share it with you, your primary job is to really try to do it. But if it doesn't work, your secondary job is to tell me. (laughs) Because if it didn't work, I messed up. 
not you. I don't want my child ever to feel it was a failure to not understand. Mm. So I own that failure. If they don't understand, I brought them the wrong key. It's my job to find another key. So I consider myself the keeper of the keys. Now that translates really well for the dyslexic kid who's going to frustrate that mom. They are, they're going to, mom's going to explain it and say, you know, you just spelled that right five minutes ago. How did you get that wrong? And instead you need to say, you know what, however it was that I taught that to you, that was obviously the wrong key. I'm going to go get another key. I'm going to find something else. And we're going to try something else because it's not their job to take the only key that I'm comfortable teaching with and keep jamming it into the lock in their brain and trying to make it work. That's not their job. So here's kind of the short version of it. A failure to learn was a failure to teach. Mm. And that's a painful, that's not probably the hardest thing I say to homeschooling moms. That's a hard thing to hear. But I don't want moms to be burdened by it. On the contrary, I want them to be freed by it and go, oh, well, you're right. If that traditional method that I was, I was used to you know, learning from when I was a kid, if it doesn't work with my child, I'm allowed to throw that out the window. I'm allowed to try something else. I'm allowed to try wildly crazy things that nobody else may want to try, but I'm going to try it because one of those is going to be the key that unlocks this information for my child. Mm-hmm. So just be, just be a keeper of the keys and let your child know, Failure is not even on the table. You'll keep looking till you find out what works for them. Mm, I love that so very much. (laughs) Um, And I am so appreciative that you shared this with us today. I know our listeners are so appreciative as well. Carol, uh, you are really a treasure um, to homeschooling moms. You share your wisdom with... um, humor, <laughs> which we all need to. <laughs> um, and so thank you again for being my guest today. My pleasure. To connect with Carol, go to sizzlebop.com or check the show notes at homeschoolsanity.com slash distracted reader. Join me next time as I share motivation myths that can hamper our homeschooling. Have a happy homeschool week. Thank you for joining me. Happy, healthy homeschooling can be yours. It begins with one small step. Let's continue the conversation on social media. I'm at Psycho with Six. This has been a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network.